The Unconventional Therapist's Guide to Nothing. everyone we are the unconventional therapists and this is your guide to nothing where every week we take a topic theme or thing overanalyze it and make it all make sense in the scheme of life living and mental health my name is dave i am joined here with my co-host greg that's it oh yeah because you're coming out somber because this is a somber one and we already feel pretty uncomfortable about the subject matter is that what's going on here sure and I, re- I just don't, I feel like it's tactless to <laughs> make the joke I was going to make. Oh, well, that, then you're probably right. So I decided to hold it inside. Okay. Bottle it up. Bottle it up, right? Yeah, isn't, that what you always tell, isn't that what you tell your patients? To Every single bottle, one of them. Just bottle up your emotions. Lock, lock it down, push it down. Never talk about them. It's all going to work out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is a little bit of a sensitive subject because uh, especially... We are men, Dave, or the closest thing to it. So the idea is we might not know everything about this. So it's important that we, we preface that. And I'll, and I'll say that again later on. Um, but I think the most important thing about this subject is to get rid of the stigma, bring it to the forefront as much as we possibly can. So essentially, um, we're just two man boys mm-hmm. sitting here tackling the toughest subject we could ever do in the best way we ever could. That's it. That's all we are. And that's all we can do. And it's important. It's important because, well, let's just get into it. I think locally, we all know that recently police responded to a a Duxbury home and discovered three children unconscious. They had been strangled to death in a murder suicide attempt. Um, So part of why this was able to happen is that the disorder we're going to be talking about is so stigmatized. The nature of postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis is what we're trying to do here is break the stigma. And that requires that we bring it out into the open and talk about it. So as heavy as this is, Dave, I think it's important that we give it a shot. I I also think, Greg, that it's heavy. It's there's stigma, but also I think it's kind of unknown. I've never heard the term postpartum psychosis until you said, hey, there's this thing going on in the news. Why don't you actually watch the news for once? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, let me check out what's going on in the real world. Yeah. Stuff like snipping your bonsai tree or whatever like hippie stuff you, you do <laughs> that keeps you so I- <laughs> They're succulents. I water the succulents. <laughs> oh, that's right. Okay. On a weekly basis, it keeps uh, them good. Yeah. And then when, I, and when I'm in the office for a half hour, one of those leaves falls off every single time and I feel terrible. Oh, that's your, you're I the one it. doing that. Oh, okay. It's just my presence that's doing it. I don't know what that means. All right. Well, let's get, let's get into this uh, postpartum depression. So up to 20% of women experience postpartum depression. So it's not rare at all. And I was going to say that zero men experience it as a little joke, but that's, that's actually not true. Not true. You're not a liar. True. You're I'm a liar. liar. About 10% of, of men can experience this too. But I think that almost takes away from the severity of it. I think. I, but I, I none guess, of them would admit it because they would all feel embarrassed for trying to take the spotlight off of the fact that their wife just pushed a baby out of them. Yeah. And you're like, eh, well, I'm a little sad too. It's like, just leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. Just, this, this is the time to bottle it up. Well, that kind of explains the sympathy weight, right? Well, yeah. 
I've, I'm still putting on mine. You got the blues. You're maybe eating a little bit more. It's just interesting that you say blues because we'll we'll talk about that. But something interesting here, Dave, is, and we know this going through all these classes, uh, it's a specifier of depression. It's not its own diagnosis. And I think that in and of itself is a problem. Like if you think about some of the specifiers of depression, like SAD, SAD, which is very difficult and we've talked about it, but I feel like postpartum depression rises to a higher level. I mean, it's an experience like birth. It can induce a variety of emotions, joy, fear, anxiety, and and definitely depression, which when I think about it must be extremely difficult because everyone around you seems to think or acts like you should be in complete joy, like having the, the time of your life. And if you're not, that feels really bad. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that that was probably, uh, you know, actually, maybe I'm wrong about this, but like from my, my point of view, I kind of feel like that's maybe like an older, old school kind of thought like that, you know, because I think we are more aware of the depression aspect of, you know, the whole process. And I think that that's a little bit more like the anxiety that moms must feel. I think a lot of us have more understanding of that than maybe like we wanted to admit previously, because you're right. It was always like that. Oh, you, you know, you're glowing and like all that stuff. And now it's more like, I think p- people understand now a little bit better, like what that process must be like for a, mom, a new yeah. mom. Yeah. I think we're trying to, and there's a lot more support, but still nowhere near enough. It, but I think still though, even, you know, probably parents and grandparents, if you have a baby and the baby's healthy, it's, oh, you're so lucky. Everything's so perfect. The baby's perfect. Everything's great. And you just feel like, well, why don't I feel great? You know, and the first, I would say diagnosis, even though it's not actually diagnosis is baby blues, they call it. And this is something that can last a couple of weeks, a few days, uh, maybe a month after birth. And this is just your mood swings, anxiety, sadness, irritability, feeling overwhelmed. I mean, and this is totally normal. To- is- well, it's, it's still technically it's, it's all totally normal, right? You feel how you feel, but this is when it's like creeping. If as a couple of weeks go by, it's starting to creep. It might be causing a little more stress than, than necessary, but trouble sleeping, appetite problems. That's how do you avoid that with a brand new baby? That's, that's the difficult thing to kind of understand. Yeah. So, and postpartum depression, and I'm not going to beat the symptoms to death with this because the symptoms are going to be fairly close to depression minus this feeling that it's difficult to bond with your baby, or you might have thoughts of hurting your baby, or you're not connecting with your baby. You're not, you're not feeling close enough in irritability, anger, hopelessness, feelings of worthlessness, withdrawing into your family, withdrawing into yourself just not wanting to be around the baby. Like these these sort of feelings, which have got to be, I mean, that's got to be tough, right? Just to, to have this brand new baby and not want to, not feel like you're connecting with it good enough. Yeah. I, can, I can only imagine how difficult that'd be. Obviously, I have no idea, but I, I can try to empathize. That's what we do. Yeah. It's an interesting thought because you think about what the anticipation of having being pregnant holding on to that that baby for that period of you know nine months or if it's sooner or if it's a little after you think about what that anticipation must must build it's hard to think that during that nine months you're not thinking about what your bond's going to be like 
Mm-hmm. Maybe you're nervous. Maybe you're scared that the bond's not going to be there. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm going to have the best bond ever. My, my child's <laughs> going to love me. You know, I, I would love to hear actual moms tell me, like, what were your thoughts during pregnancy about how you were going to bond with your child and did it match? Yeah, so I, I would love to hear actually someone who didn't experience baby blues or postpartum depression. That, that's a great, you know, that's the point, kind of, right? Kind of, yeah, to kind of get like, what is, what are, what do pregnant moms think about when it comes to that stuff? And then, so you feel you you feel bad. It's not a good thing. You feel good. They get worried too, and I'll explain why. The real danger, postpartum depression can last a, a long time. It can last even up to a year and maybe even longer. Um, but the the dangerous things happen, more dangerous things happen, I should say, with postpartum psychosis. So, Greg, before you get to postpartum psychosis, okay. though, let's, the, you mentioned something about the thoughts. Yeah. And I think it's really important to highlight what those thoughts are again, because this reminded me of our episode about OCD. Sure. And what you were talking about with the negative thoughts that can come up, like those uh, thoughts, like suddenly I want to punch this person in the face and I know I shouldn't do that, but I'm like, I'm so afraid I'm going to do it. What is What is that highlighting? So when you you think about these thoughts a mom's having, they're afraid they're going to do something that's going to hurt their child. They're afraid they're going to throw their baby. They're going to drop their baby. What do all those things highlight about the mom? Their values and how much they care about their baby. Yes, they are so nervous about harming this child because they love this child in their mind. And that's like the funny thing about thoughts is they like, if we just take them for surface level, we misinterpret the meaning of the thoughts. And that's why we have to actually say them out loud sometimes and talk to somebody about them. Right. And it's, and that's the thing that's difficult too. And that's where the stigma comes in. It's difficult for a mom to talk to anyone and say, hey, I really hope this isn't true, but I'm having these feelings and these thoughts about hurting the baby or I, I'm, I can't connect with my baby and I wanna, I, I, I'm afraid I'm going to harm the baby. Who can they say that to? You can't say, then you're going to start thinking, well, is DCYF going to get involved or is my family going to think less of me? Are they going to take this baby away from me? But in reality, those thoughts are coming from a place like, it, like it's evolutionary. This, these, these feelings are being turned into language that's strong enough for your, your brain's trying to send you a message, protect this baby at all costs. Right. So it's, it's sending you this message. Like you're afraid this baby is going to get hurt. And it's interpreting, you're interpreting it as I'm going to hurt this baby through your own thoughts, playing these horrible tricks on you. Yeah. And that you're right. That's something we see with OCD. That's something we see sometimes with just anxiety in general. Well, and that's another thing I was going to point out. Cause like, I do have some patients that are moms and they've talked to me about this fear they have of that. They're a bad mom. And often, I mean, it's, it's often untrue. It's almost always untrue. Let me just mm-hmm. put it that way. The fact that they're even talking to me about it is exactly in line with what we're talking about here. Right. They're talking about it with me because it's a fear they have because they love their child and they don't want to be a bad mom, which already kind of makes them not a bad mom. It's like, yeah, you can't be doing the same thing. Yeah. If you're worried about whether or not you're a good mom, guess what? You're a good yeah. mom. Yeah. Exactly. Because you're doing things to prevent yourself from being a bad mom. So those two things can't exist at the same time. I have uh, one patient who had some early onset like disruption with her caregiver. So I 
think uh, she was, there was some DCYF involvement when she was really young. She kind of has this uh, like ongoing anxious attachment with her child that she's going to do something wrong and her child's going to get taken away. It causes her to hyper-focus on every step, everything that she does, worrying that my child's going to get taken away. And it's the smallest thing sometimes. And then I, I like, it's so hard for me to sit there sometimes and be like, there's no way a child would ever get, you know, taken away from right. you. Because we, you. I mean, we see that all the time. a bad lunch or something to daycare or something like. Oh, you wrote like, a joke on the, in the lunchbox and it was just a terrible one. Right. <laughs> or like, or somebody insulted your parenting or they commented on your parenting. It would, it would be like even that. And we all know in society how judgmental everybody is about parenting styles, which is so ridiculous. Cause it's like, if you're not being abusive, and you're not doing something harmful to your child, mind your business, right? Yeah, if you're trying your best, then you're you're in the right, you're on the right path. Yeah. I think that's basically what it comes down to. Cause we talk to, especially you, Dave, you talk to a lot of little kids. And I think that you would agree with the kids that I talk to, a lot of them, all they want is a parent who just want to try their best. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a mother that would try her best. That's like a dream to so many children. And if you're afraid you're not doing well enough as a mother, just, and you know, you're trying your best, you're doing it. Just keep doing that. It's a beautiful thing. Exactly. Yep. So I just wanted to kind of highlight the thought process that goes in. Cause I hear it all the time. It, it, and it's, it is something that I think is, it's based in, you know, this, this whole idea of what we're talking about, as far as, you know, like the feelings that, a, a new mom gets after pregnancy, but it's also kind of influenced heavily by that judgment from society, I think too. So it's like external and internal at the same a thousand percent. Time. And those thought that thought stuff, I mean, even want to get back to the Catholic stuff, somehow we managed to squeeze that in. I remember being a kid and going to confession, my first confession and, and not having a whole, like, I didn't really, what was I doing? Right. Um, you ever make up, you ever make up sense. So, well, what they told me was, do you ever think any bad thoughts? And I'm like, oh, geez, well, now we're going to be here all night because I didn't realize that what you thought could be used as a sin. And that isn't, that's just not fair. And also not true. Think you think what you think, you know, that you can't, you can't change what you think. You don't have a choice to have these thoughts. No one's asking for these intrusive thoughts. They happen. And what you do with them afterwards is is all you have control over. Diving back in. Postpartum psychosis. This is when things are getting a little bit more difficult. So you could feel confused and lost, have obsessive thoughts about your baby, kind of talking about that, hallucinating and having delusions, a lot of sleep problems, which are going to be there anyway, and and certainly don't help the situation. Having too much energy, feeling paranoid, and making attempts to harm yourself or the baby, which is a little confusing because when we're going to have to explain psychosis a little bit and what might be going on there. So another thing that they, the Mayo clinic doesn't mention when their symptoms is, and I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to a couple moms and maybe I, I've been given permission not to share their names, but to, you know, tell some of their story. And in both cases, what the first thing they noticed before slipping into a postpartum psychosis was they felt bliss and they felt joy and they felt like they were connecting perfectly with their baby and they had everything figured out. So they're elevated. So they're super elevated. And when you, when we see that we, that's what we really see with psychosis. We don't see it. It, it sometimes feels 
egocentric. It feels good. It feels like everything makes sense. And sometimes this is the first step in postpartum psychosis. Right. So with that, with the postpartum depression, it's ego dystonic. Mm-hmm. So we're afraid of our own thoughts. We realize our thoughts are off, right? And which is actually safe. We're aware of that. And mm-hmm. that's, yeah. So that's, that's important to recognize. Uh, with the psychosis, it's egocentronic, like Greg said. So this is their reality. This is, mm-hmm. they believe what they're experiencing is reality. Um, and also, you know, you're mentioning the elevated mood that happens kind of before, you know, we get to the more serious stuff. That's interesting because one of the big factors for someone to be predisposed to postpartum psychosis is having a family history of bipolar. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about obviously that Obviously, you would have the mania or they have, they've had a previous psychotic episode. I do think it's important because we're talking about this just to kind of recognize though, um, it's not the most common thing. I think it happens from like to maybe one, I think the stat was like one to two mo- uh, mothers out of like every thousand deliveries or something along those lines. So yeah, that's kind of, I guess it's all about perspective on that because I read the same number and I'm kind of thinking it's not that rare. Because but if you how- give it like a percentage, it was a super low mm. percentage. Um, yeah, so I don't know. It's It's an interesting thing. So one out of every 500 births. Sure. Or they were, it was like one to two. So I don't know. It's somewhere in there. Uh, you know, the other part of this though, it, stat, stat wise, it suggests that there's approximately 5% suicide rate and a 4% infant, infant side. Yeah. Right? Infanticide. Infanticide. Are you yeah. sure? That? I am unfortunately. Um, uh, so the, that's the rate for associated with the illness, which isn't great. No, it's not great. And this happens, especially the psychosis can really start to gain traction. You know, it's important to to nip this in the bud if you can as early as possible. But remember, the first sign can be you're feeling really good. You're overjoyed. You're doing a great job. When you go to the the doctors to talk about how, and we're going to talk about how this is ridiculous. There's only one check-in after a ton of prenatal care. And after birth, birth, there's not enough at all. But we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. But what are you going to say at this point, at this stage of psychosis? Oh, yeah, I feel great. Um, everything's going perfect. My baby's perfect. And I think we're connecting beautifully. I mean, are you going to tell them you feel too good? Are you going to tell them you're too confident of a mother? It's just kind of, it's a dangerous place. I wonder how. Undetected. Yeah. And if you're feeling good, you're not thinking something's wrong. So how, how would you report that? So you have to wait till it progresses. And maybe someone else somebody else is yeah. prob- hopefully somebody else is noticing that you seem off and they're able to kind of facilitate that. Yeah. So it's not to say that a deep depressive state couldn't induce psychosis as well, but I think it's much more likely in the manic states. And the dangers with the break from reality are real. I mean, voices, delusions, and hallucinations. Dave, just like we talked about in the schizophrenia episode, most of the time it's co- command hallucinations. And it's, it's always invasive and scary. It's, it's, it's never going to be this sweet voices that you're hearing that are very comforting and, and lulling you to sleep. It's always very like threatening and that's very spooky and scary. And who can you tell, especially if this, this harmful voice it's again, it's who are you going to tell as a mother? 
who can you report this stuff to if you're not sure what's going on? And that's, again, why the stigma creates a dangerous situation. And that's what allows us to dopey men to even attempt to talk about this. Sure. We have to. Everyone should, right? We have to. All right, Dave, let's talk a little bit about depression and bipolar and the importance of keeping up with your mental health beforehand. One of the one of the things that's a really big issue and can lead to the onset of the postpartum psychosis is sleep. Okay. And I think that's a very important thing for us to kind of re- recognize. It's one of the two things that felt the most important for me to kind of recognize as being big challenges because when you think about sleep and you think about a newborn, you probably aren't thinking that sleep is going to be good. And Greg, you would probably know this because you have 20 kids and that's 20 times your sleep has been interrupted, right? I haven't gotten eight hours sleep in 17 years. Sure. So what is considered to be enough sleep if you are a new parent? I don't know. I think one thing we can say is obviously some sleep is is needed, right? (laughs) Try that. And I think it's important to just for people to be aware of that, that like sleep deprivation can lead to something like this, like postpartum depression, like any sort of mental health. It would be that way if you didn't have a new child. So why would it be any different with a new child, right? Yeah. It's just, what's the answer to that? a strong partner. Like what if you don't have someone right? Exactly. help? It's very, exactly. it puts you in this really tough spot because like you said, you cannot have a newborn and get a good night's sleep. It just, you just I cannot. No. The other par- part of this that feels almost like there's no answer for it specifically is the fact that people who are on medication, specifically uh, what kind of medication is it? Mood stabilizers. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, mood stabilizer medications, there's a likelihood that like you're going to might want to stop taking the mood stabilizer during pregnancy because of the effect it can have on the unborn baby, right? So it can lead to like some kind of abnormalities or some kind of uh, birth issues. So that might cause you to go off your medication. Therefore, you are now an unmedicated person with some sort of mental health issue that made you yeah. go on the mood stabilizer, which is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you made the conscious choice to not take the mood stabilizer during pregnancy for the sake of the baby's health, which is totally responsible and okay as well. But now you're unmedicated. You just had a baby. You're super stressed out. Your body has gone through all these changes. And now what? It puts you in an almost impossible situation. It can create a perfect storm. And that's why if you have had depression or especially bipolar, well, if you've experienced depression historically at all, it would be a, it would be good to know if it was, you know, unipolar depression or bipolar depression. Because like Dave's talking about, those are two very different classes of medications. For one thing, you could probably get away with taking the SSRIs or the depression medication while you're pregnant in most cases. But if you're if you're required to be on mood stabilizers or antipsychotics, that's probably not going to work out. And sometimes it's not as easy as you would think to know if if someone is or has bipolar. Because oftentimes, like we said, you won't usually see them until they're in a depressed state. So they might just get 
Yeah. They might just get the SSRIs and and go and and give birth and not know the whole time that they could have been entering a manic state. So it's very important to have your mental health under control before, I guess, you know, it's, and, and who are we to say, like, how can you say that, you know, you should be taking care of your mental health? We just always think you should be taking care of your mental health for sure. But I think it's, it needs to be more a part of prenatal care than it is right now. Like a huge part. We, I, when we did our bipolar episode, our stat for people's, uh, who have bipolar, they could have, what was it like one to two manic episodes in a lifetime or something yeah. like that. So, so like, so, there's a chance case, you yeah. never had a manic episode, but you have bipolar and you might not even. Well, maybe know. you have bipolar. You never had a manic episode, but now we throw on this incredible trauma of pregnancy and birth. We throw on sleep deprivation yeah. and stress and pressure. And guess what? And here's your, here's your, um, your maniac served up. It has to be. Right. And, and, you know, back to the idea of the medication, I just, I wanted to point this out too. So just because you have the baby doesn't mean you immediately go back on your mood stabilizers because also now you're breastfeeding and you don't want to take the mood stabilizer while you're breastfeeding for the same reason as before it can be Mm -hmm. transmitted in the breast milk. So you can't just hop back on your medication in the time where you probably need it most. And this is, and this, these decisions are typically being made without the help of mental health professionals or your doctor, because again, like I said, you're in prenatal care. You're seeing the doctor often when, um, before you give birth, but after you give birth, not nearly enough. I think there's one mental health check-in and that's, that is disturbing. Yeah. Cause how many people are going to go into that one mental health check-in and be like, um, I had all these terrible thoughts. Well, you know how those things go too with the with the primary care physician or the obstetrician. They're going to say, "Hey, have you thought of uh, killing yourself? Are you okay?" And and they're going to say, "Yes." That's going to be the extent of your mental health check. Uh, you've been to the doctor, Dave? I imagine. I have gone <laughs> almost every year of my life. Oh wow! I haven't been in a long time. God knows what's going on inside my body. Uh, so let's talk about risk factors for this. Obviously. Prenatal mental health is incredibly important, um, especially bipolar. That's going to be a thing. The environment, the relationship you're in, Dave, that's going to play a huge role, right? Yeah. The trauma of the birth. What, what was the pregnancy like? History of mood disorders in the in the family, like you said. What if the baby has any problems? What if the baby has health problems? What if you're having trouble breastfeeding? What if you have multiple births? What if you have twins or triplets? God forbid. There's obviously a ton of hormonal changes that can mimic depression, the sleep deprivation. It's just the most stressful thing ever, I can imagine. I remember when I had my first baby, the doctor was a Vietnam like war doctor. Um, and he told me that after seeing everything he saw there, the first three months of his first child's life was the most stressful thing he's ever been through. Oh, boy. And I think he meant it. He meant it. And look, it's hard. It's hard. Sleep deprivation in and of itself is difficult. And if you're woken up by screaming, I mean, that's hard. So when should people get help, Dave? Soon as possible. I, exactly. I almost feel just get help. I don't even, don't even wait for symptoms. You should just automatically get help after, after you give birth get some support. The the prenatal care is great. We're all big fans of that. But after birth, it's arguably more important to get the check-ins then. 
that's when everything's hitting the fan, as they say. Well, the prenatal birth, like oversight, seems like it's for the baby. The the post birth check ins feel like they're for the mom, just as much as the baby. A thousand percent. But in light of, in light of recent events and those statistics you provided earlier, those dark statistics with the suicide and the infant infanticide, it's it's for everybody. It's yeah. for it's for like the well-being of society as a whole because this takes us back a peg when, when tragedies like this happen dave if you don't mind i, I can share an, a just a short short narrative that i have from a patient that i worked with and you, i'd like to like hear your thoughts about it so when she came home she felt euphoric she felt great everything was going well she thought she connected great with the baby and the husband was happy went back to work a little earlier than he was going to because it just felt like things were going so well. It was like she was, she felt like Mary Poppins, you know? And she started to get paranoid when their grandparents, her own grandparents were around. And she eventually accused the grandmother of molesting and drugging the baby. And like you've talked about before with psychosis, this is, she's sure this is happening. She's not a, like, mm, I'm a little... This is a little wishy-washy about this. She's sure this is happening. And she was so confident that she convinced her husband. The husband and her, they went, they had the kids tested and all this was unfounded. Time went on. She felt drugged. And, and you can imagine how the relationship with the grandparents changed after that. But she felt drugged and she called 911 and that was unfounded too. She thought her husband was cheating. I mean, she I shouldn't say she thought. She knew her husband was cheating with the nurses that were helping with the baby. She knew, and it turned out that wasn't true either. So now she's like really kind of spiraling and she's starting to get the auditory and visual hallucinations. She hears mumbling. She's obviously paranoid about tons of things. She thinks that people in the TV are watching her through her TV. And she was lucky. And the reason why she was lucky and she managed to get help is because her husband was super supportive for one thing. But the other part about it was she talked about it. She kept bringing this stuff up, which is typically not what people do. People aren't usually like, uh, I think people are talking to me through the TV. I think grandma's molesting the baby. They kind of hold this inside it. They're like, am I going crazy? Is this really happening? And the fact that maybe she was deep into the psychosis, is, it could be what saved her. And she's a huge advocate now for mothers. So, I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really an intense situation. That's pretty wild. Yeah, it's, it's intense. Dave, and we may have brought this uh, a short story up before in the past. Um, do you know anything about the, the yellow wallpaper story? I, I brought it up in like two episodes already. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think we it, brought it up in, actually, oddly enough, I feel like it was one of the ones like Seven Deadly Sins or something like that. We were talking about just people. Oh, we were talking about gaslighting. Okay. Okay, that's perfect, actually. And the story for, for those of us who this might be the first episode. <laughs> Uh, a husband isolates his wife and she creates her own lonely, deep, psychotic depression and reality and unreality sort of merge for her. And I think this story, we should have just pointed this story out in this episode because it's written by a woman and this story is, lit, is about postpartum and the story is written in 1892 and how men treat the illness that they can't fully understand. And I wanted to make clear Dave, that we are fully aware that we are men and we could never fully understand this, this situation either. But I think it's important to pull the shroud off 
a shroud of stigma off of this subject and, you know, shine it in the light a little bit. Sure. So, and, you know, thinking about other pop culture references, I think that this topic has been getting more and more spotlight. And I think that sometimes we'll see it in what can be kind of a scary way. Like I can think of 10 horror movies off the top of my head that now that I I know of what postpartum uh, psychosis is, we're based on postpartum psychosis. And it's kind of interesting now for me to like think back about the narratives of those stories. And uh, I just think it's interesting because it wasn't something I was super familiar with. Why aren't we super familiar with that? Listen, we avoid these. We we usually create a monster for this kind of stuff. Yeah. We actively have people telling stories about this and making, you know, creating films and writing novels about this stuff. Yet it feels so unspoke about. So that should change. That should change. Unfortunately, it it always takes a really negative situation for change to actually happen, as we know. Yeah. Way too many times in in our history, we have you know it takes a, a shooting or you know something like the nature of this you know the narrative that you gave at the beginning of this about the woman from Duxbury, Mass. Um, it takes something like that for people to even start talking about these things. Well, we can see how society has made a shift at this point. When you think about, do you remember the Andrea Tate case, the mother? The name sounds very familiar. I think she, she, I don't know exactly what happened, but she drove, she had her kids in the car and she like drove off a cliff or into a river or something like that. Um, I, yes, yes, yes. I do know that one. This was she, probably she in the 90s. Survive. Yes, she did. I know that one. It was like a lake or something like that, I believe, if I could be wrong. But yes, I do know that one. So when you think about the the public's reaction to that, it was, you know, obviously horror, but they were like burner, killer. So you know, and this is a lot a hard- different- Situation. It's such a hard thing, Greg, though. And like, I know this I know. is a case where like, normally I feel like our roles would be flipped and you would be like, have a really harsh opinion about mm-hmm. it. And I'd be like, well, you know, but like, I'm actually now like, you know, well, how do you let someone off the hook because they didn't take care of themselves? You can't let them off the hook. No, you can't. Obviously you have to hold them accountable and responsible, but also understand. And I guess maybe that just maybe that will influence like the course of action after of mm-hmm. what happens to that person, knowing that this is something that could be, they could have been going through. I don't think it's, it, I don't think it's a let it off the hook situation. I think it's a, let's understand how this situation happened in reality. Let's not just make this person a monster right away. I, I, look, I know it's difficult and I, I, I don't think that anybody should get away with this. This I'm very, into existentialism. I think what you do is what you do and you have to be punished for the things that the choices that you make, whether or not you were, well, I guess that brings up an interesting question when you're in the throes of psychotic break, what, what is your culpability for murder, Dave? I mean, I pass that to you. (laughs) It's a tough, tough question because it certainly changes when it's children. I mean, remember, we talked about Woodman Sea, we talked about Craig Bryson, where we had no remorse. And I can't, I guess I just, I feel the same way here. And I just want to understand what happened in the brain so that this could be prevented in the future. And I want to make sure that 
mothers are getting the the treatment they need after birth as well as before. But what you can't can't let this off the hook. I think what we can do is what you had said in the beginning. And I think taking it a little, even a little step further, I think what we can do though, we can still be outraged. We can still be shocked. We should still follow through with accountability and responsibility on those people's ends. Mm -hmm. I think what we can stop doing though is making those people into these super villains acting as if they have some kind of special powers that make them so heartless and so cold and understand that there's actually something really wrong with their mental health that has led them to the actions they do. It's almost like we turn these people into like these super villains in society. And they're like, they, as if that's what they were put on this earth for, but that's not the case. They didn't choose their biology. They didn't choose their mental health issues. Some of them have made choices that, you know, and those people I think are different than what we're talking about here. But when we're talking about people who have like severe mental health issues, I think it's like we have to stop making it seem like everything they've done was completely and solely by choice. Well, if we make monsters of them, it's it gives us distance from them. And we can go to bed at night thinking that person was a monster. That could never happen to me or anyone in my family because they're a monster and I'm not. Right. It's, it's a lot harder to look at them and say, oh, wow, this person had bipolar their whole life. This person suffered from depression. This person had some relatable mental health disorders and things got really out of hand and she broke into a psychotic break. And, and you know, this could happen to a regular person. And that's a lot scarier than making them a monster. Yeah. Understanding that we all have the potential to be a monster is, is you the know, real fear. You say that, Greg, but then you and I sit across from people every day wondering at what point they could go that way. And we don't want that for our patients. And we always think of them in the highest regard. And, but we do always have to question like, all right, well, how far can this go before it gets really bad? And we have to like do something different than what we're doing now. Like, you know, those, those people that come in and it's like, mm, I'm just not seeing the progress I was hoping for. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, it feels today like things might even be a little worse than it was last time. We're constantly judging that so that we can hopefully head something off before it gets too serious. And we, we do that because we want to understand, we want to help, and we want to prevent those kind of things. So I think there's a difference. Those people that want to just villainize so they can and create monsters so they can put their heads down, for me, that doesn't sit right with just the way that I, I view the world and how we all have to be active participants in helping the world be a safer place and be a better place, right? Well, not everyone's going to do that. Sucks. It does suck. It does suck because that's what's hard. Because when you have to, when you look at that person and you see what, what they could do, you have to look at yourself and see what you can do. I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very scary. And I think the best thing that you can do, Dave, is you're talking about a feeling. And sometimes we have to trust our guts as, as people who work in the mental health field, as a family member. If you feel like something's off, reach out and get the help that you think someone needs before things get out of hand. I know this is probably a comment for a totally different time, but I, I've had this thought recently because I've had a few conversations that were pretty um, intense. 
And you know how the other thing that we do is we we make a monster out of the person, but then we also we reflect on all those early warning signs that were missed by the teachers and by the mm-hmm. parents and by the professionals. It's so much harder than that, though. Yeah. Because a kid doesn't just or a person doesn't just say a thing and then we're like, oh, my God, I got to go tell someone and we got to stop. Like. It's usually within the context of like that person's personality. So sometimes it you kind of just hear it. I'm not going to say you disregard important things sometimes, but you don't always assume that that just because they said that it's going to lead to this terrible event down the road. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Like, how are you going to know? And and sometimes if you if we're going to do something or we're going to make a call or we're going to, you know, if it's a young mother or if it's a it's a kid you're worried about or even you know whoever, if you make the wrong call, either way, you're, you're changing their life and you're making it worse mm-hmm. in some ways. If you made the wrong call, you now just probably ruined your therapeutic relationship with that person, which possibly could have been beneficial to, you know, helping them with whatever's going on. It's when you, you know, when you make that call that like things have changed Mm -hmm. at that point. So you got to, you might've ruined their relationship with the mental health field in general, in general. And that could lead to other issues, especially if they spend some time hospitalized. That's never, I, we've come a long way from, the asylums of old, but it's still no picnic. Yeah. So. Yeah. A little bit of a tangent. Sorry about that, but it just felt like it was kind of in the line with what we were just talking about at the end. So. Yeah. A little bit heavier than usual. Not as many laughs. If there's, you know, but thought it was topical and important and deserved a shot. So hopefully we didn't offend anybody and we, we did our best. And if you are liking these episodes please leave a review or rate our podcast please is that right is that right dave is that how you say sounds about right yeah that'd be good we would appreciate that yes so thank you everybody for tuning in uh we will be back next week with a new episode new vibe a different vibe we'll go with a different vibe Depends who's picking the episode, so we'll see. (laughs) All right, everybody, have a great night. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. Be safe. Good night.